The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Trump's America, y'all. Hooray. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm uh, Matthew Iglesias with my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein, as usual, coming to you from the first podcast of Donald Trump's America. American Carnage. A special edition podcast. A special carnage edition. <laughs> um, the city of Washington is in a bit of a, uh, I guess, a small state of carnage. Yeah, the, carnage. there's not no carnage. Yeah. There's a little bit of carnage. Uh, at, at the time we're talking, there is riot gas on the streets. It isn't huge protests, but I believe about 100 people have been arrested. There were a couple of injuries, including among police who were hit by things people were throwing. There's some tear gassing, some newsstands put on fire. Mm-hmm. So. Some broken windows. There's also a presidential inauguration Inauguration today. I heard about that. That happened. Those things were connected, I should say. Oh yes, right. They were actually protesting uh, the new the new president. Um, Who's that? uh, His name is Donald Trump. (laughs) He's a former real estate developer (laughs) whose unlikely rise to the presidency has been the subject of some previous discussion on the Weeds podcast. I should go back and listen. Um, So, what did you guys think of the inaugural address here? I have a lot of thoughts. Donald Trump is often characterized in terms of his lack of discipline. Um, this speech, though, was like, in some ways, the opposite of that. That's right. right. Yes. There was a Donald Trump theory of the election, which was that you could get white working class northerners to vote for the Republican Party in larger numbers than had been the case traditionally if Donald Trump distanced himself from the institutional Republican Party and strongly emphasized themes of American economic nationalism. Um, And law and order. And law and order. That theory, it proved true. In a particular way, the fact that Trump lost the popular vote uh, makes it Prove like doubly true. I think sometimes you hear these things that like, well, because Trump won, like he has his finger on the pulse of the American people and stuff. But that's all wrong. He, he lost the popular vote and he lost it quite badly. But that actually shows how well done the demographic targeting was, right? There was a, a crucial constituency of people, white working class people in the Midwest who really, really, really liked this message and who I think Democrats may have even forgotten how many uh, dollops of that message they used to put into their kinds of speeches and were not prepared to be sort of like out anti-outsourced the way that they, they were by Trump. And he just like stuck with it, right? I mean, it was like if he was giving a rally in Michigan the week before the election, this is what he would have said. And he's being inaugurated and it's what he said, right? It was like precisely on target for the Trump theory of the electorate. There are a lot of other things you could have conceivably tried to do with an inauguration, and he didn't try. But there's this like group of people who put him in the White House, and he delivered a message right for them. What did you think of that, Sarah? Because he didn't, he didn't talk about Obamacare. He didn't do anything to reach out to people who are potentially unnerved by him. He's doing this with very low approval ratings. Like, what was your take on, on that piece of it? I was surprised at how restrained it felt, like Matt was saying. Like, I think we've gotten like used to like Trump going off the rails a little bit and um, 
it felt like an inauguration that I could have like heard. It would not have felt crazy to me to hear someone else give this inauguration. Huh. Um, but it sounds like you disagree with me. So no, good, we'll, but finish your yeah, point, yeah. please. One of the things that felt quite familiar about it to me was that the rhetoric of the speech does not line up with um, kind of like where things are policy wise. And I think that like is kind of like how I think about the fact Obamacare was not there at all. And in a way, it like felt familiar that a lot of times I feel like and I think there's something like Matt's written about Dylan wrote a piece for our website about today that they're often in a lot of the Trump rhetoric just like does not match up in any sort of semblance to the actual policies that he's pursuing. So in his inauguration today, he talked a lot about returning wealth to people and, um, you know, improving the country. But when you look at his actual policies, like what we see on WhiteHouse.gov so far, it's quite different. And it felt like this was quite different from he's again and again said Obamacare is like my number one domestic priority, like made this point so clearly and then this speech, that was nowhere to be found. There was no discussion at all of it. And that's almost become like really familiar to me as a policy reporter in the Trump era, like a really big disconnect between what comes up in these addresses and like what is actually happening, like in the policy proposals he does put out in like the actual world of legislating that they seem like they're two totally separate people like running two totally separate theories of government and like strategies of legislating. I mean, in that way, you you and I were talking earlier today about a, a Yuval Levin piece. It was published at the mm-hmm. National Review about the Obamacare fight and and not to not to dive into Obamacare here, but he has this interesting thing where he talks about the difference between what Trump is saying publicly and then what his staffers are doing mm-hmm. privately. And, and he says, and I, I may get this wrong from memory, he says Trump's staff is cutting a very different figure than Donald Trump himself. And and apparently the the idea among a lot of Republicans right now is to sort of ignore what Trump is saying and just assume that his staff is really representing Which is like him crazy, out there. Right? Maybe I, I, I have no idea. But but let me make one more point on the speech before before going into that. This was a very dark speech. This was a very midnight in America speech. And I will say that, one, I was surprised how little effort was made to reach out at all. Uh, I, I've said this. I don't remember if I said it on the podcast before. I don't think it would be difficult for Trump to be at a much higher approval rating right now. I don't think it would have been difficult for him to have a couple of paragraphs in the speech that would have been friendlier uh, to to folks who are concerned about his inauguration. I think the bar for him to reach out right now is very low and he did not take it. The other is that I often find Trump at his least effective when he is at his most scripted. It isn't the speech was bad. It was populist in an interesting way. Um, But it was without Trump's carnival atmosphere, without his he's very funny. He's very good on the stump. He's got a really good extemporaneous style. He He's able to lighten a very dark speech, which is what he did in his rallies. It's why his rallies were fun to go to. Um, he is interesting when he's doing that. And when you take all that stuff out of him, this happened, I thought, at his convention, too. And his convention did not end up polling particularly well. It's not that I think the speech is going to be some kind of public disaster. I don't think by any means it was a disaster. But when you sever Trump from his sort of idiosyncratic reality television show dimension, and it's just his incredibly grim vision of the state of the country. I find it very heavy. I'll be curious to see if it's something that works on people in a broader sense. To me, what's interesting is, you know, all politicians, I think presidents especially, have a certain amount of 
division of labor in their administration, where there is one group of people who works on speeches and there is another group of people who works on like talking to members of Congress about what's up. Um, And Trump seems really committed to the idea that those universes can proceed really on like totally, totally separate tracks. Um, And to give him like some credit where due on that, I I do think it's true that if you look with like an adequately, you know, cold eye at the Obama administration or, or congressional Democrats, you will often see this thing that they try to do where there's a provision in or I shouldn't even say it's a provision, but in the corporate income tax code, business can deduct expenses, right, from income and the cost of doing business. So one way you might incur expenses is if you close down a factory and relocate production to another country, there would be some expenses associated with closing that factory down. So companies uh, deduct that from their tax bill uh, the way they would deduct any other kind of expense. Democrats have, for as long as I've been involved in politics, characterize this as tax breaks for companies that ship jobs overseas, which is, I think, a pretty uh, abusive characterization of, of what's going on. And then they've hung on that characterization like a lot of a lot of rhetoric. You know, I, I wrote today about uh, Barack Obama's, you know, inclusive vision of America. And I went back and I, I was rereading his uh, his 2004 convention address, uh, which I think is mostly dedicated to articulating Barack Obama's inclusive vision of America. But there is this little thing in there about tax breaks for companies that ship jobs overseas, um, which was like a constant refrain of John Kerry's campaign of congressional Democrats in 2006. As it turns out, when Democrats had the majority for two years, they somehow seem to have not gotten rid of these tax breaks, um, perhaps to have something that Obama could again talk about once Republicans took Congress. But like if he really, really, really wanted to close this very minor uh, loophole, right, like if he if you really believe that like the key to rebuilding American industry was eliminating this possibility from the corporate income tax code, you could have found something to bargain with Paul Ryan about. But like he he didn't. Right. I mean, this was it's a real thing. But Democrats have been bullshitting about it for like a long time. But they've been in this weird democratic kind of way, they've been totally bullshitting about it, but also really, really insistent on maintaining the policy provision, right? And I think like the Trump proposition is like, well, what if you went beyond that, right? Like who in the world even understands the relationship between that rhetoric about companies shipping jobs overseas and corporate income tax accounting, right? Like why not just lie? Like if you're going to be dishonest, like why not just lie? And I think that like Trump has always gotten really far in life by lying to people. It's been like integral to his his business process has been to like say he's going to pay you for this and then he doesn't. I think it could work. You know, if you have a credible legislative affairs staff who Paul Ryan and other people on the Hill, you know, believe those guys, your speeches can just say something else. Well, so I'm going to make the case against lying, which will not be very controversial. But I think at some point, like this is the point where it catches up to you, right? Like it's at some point you have to start actually legislating. And like this has become like clear to me in like the healthcare space. Like Donald Trump spent an entire campaign talking about how he's going to cover everybody, how he's not going to let anyone die in the street. And people, at least the Trump voters I talked to, they like voted on that. They thought that was true. They thought that was Donald Trump's 
healthcare plan. They use Obamacare and they expected him to come up with something that was going to be just as comprehensive, even if not more, which just bore absolutely no resemblance to his campaign proposal. Like, I think at some point, and like, it feels like we're getting to that point right now is like when the lying actually catches up with you, when you actually have to pass laws and propose and make proposals that re- really show kind of where your policies shape up. Well, but, but like that's Congress's problem. I mean, I agree, as we've discussed on previous episodes, right? Like congressional Republicans are going to have some difficulty, like finding a single piece of legislation that they all want to go vote for. But like, if they do, then Trump can sign it. And if they don't, then they don't. Like, it just doesn't seem like Donald Trump has a problem here. I I think he does. I'm a, well, we'll see. But I I wrote a piece this morning and have been thinking about this for the last couple of days. Something that was very unique about Donald Trump at the presidential level was that he was able to run without a political record that people could hold him to. Uh, And to sort of exactly the point you're making, Matt, Hillary Clinton had a long record and had had a lot of that rhetoric over the course of her record. And I always thought the single most effective attack Trump would levy at Clinton was this, well, you've been around 30 years and you haven't fixed it. And people are like, yeah, you have been around 30 years and you haven't fixed it. And, you know, now Trump is going to be in this position where instead of people looking at him as a change agent, they're going to be looking at him to actually change things and to have made good on changing things. And when they do that, he is going to have to have something to show for it. When he says at the end of the campaign, and Matt, you are the one who reminded me this today, that this is your last chance to achieve every dream you've ever dreamed for your country. <laughs> yeah, that does seem like a bit. Of, of a <laughs> but even just to the Make America Great stuff, he is somebody who people thought he do, he doesn't have appropriate experience. And it turned out for being a candidate, he did. People not recognized how in an era of cable news and disintermediated communication through social networks, the experience of a reality television star who is really skillful at keeping the attention focused on him actually was really relevant to running a campaign. But governing is very different. Governing is difficult. Uh, This is a a place where I think that one reason politicians try not to lie outrightly is because then you end up having these attacks levied at you in ways that are ways that are complicated. And so he's going to have to find, I think, some way for people to not view him as a total fraud. Now, it could be the case that people just don't care. One thing that is interesting about Trump is a certain shamelessness about him. And the reason I always find it fascinating is that one of the questions I think it has raised, at least for me, is whether the thing that hurts politicians is when they get caught lying and doing something wrong or when they admit that they have been caught lying and doing something wrong. Trump often will get attacked and in a place where a normal politician would fold, he just won't. He will just fight back and refuse and go on the offensive. And I think sometimes about during the campaign, I remember there was a I think it was an NBC forum. And this is one I think Matt Lauer ran it. Do you guys yeah. remember what I'm talking about? And the first seven questions were some version of what about your emails to Hillary Clinton? Right. And because Hillary Clinton had taken the stance of I did do something wrong. I'm sorry about that. Every time she had to admit that she had done something wrong and she was agreeing and Matt Lauer was agreeing and everybody's agreeing it was bad. And then, you know, Trump would come out on whatever. And Matt Lauer, I think that he didn't do this, but others would say, well, you've lied about your support for the Iraq war. And just no, I didn't. And he always created the fight around him. And so maybe it's true. Maybe you do not get caught for lying in politics. You only get caught for it's only bad for you if you allow there to be 
both sides agreeing that what you did but was wrong. But I think wrong. there's something else going on. I don't fully know what it is. So, like, I think to the whole grab him by the pussy incident where he did get on national television and he said this wasn't appropriate language. And that's like the one time I've seen him apologize. Yeah. And it like didn't seem to me. And maybe it's like overloaded by all the rest of this stuff. But even when like he has been caught in this case, like saying something that like he agreed, he would later say like this was inappropriate. It didn't really seem to matter much in a way I thought was going to be like campaign ending in a way a lot of people thought would be I think that campaign ending. I think that was the episode that did hurt him. And I think in part because if you because remember, like a bunch of Republicans withdrew their endorsements right yeah. then. I think part of it was because he wasn't creating a fight over it. It created space for a lot of misgivings about mm-hmm. him to erupt. It didn't campaign end. Right. Like it, right. and I agree with you that it should have. But I think there is more to it than that. But I'm also like, I do want to say, I do think results matter in politics. I'm just not sure they matter in the particular as opposed to the general. So it's like if Donald Trump takes office and there is a recession of any kind in the year of the 2020 election, whether it is because of his policies or not, he is probably going to lose a 2020 election. And if there is a boom of any kind, like I think irrelevant to whether or not he has been keeping up with his promises, he's probably going to win the 2020 election. So you can't escape reality. If he started a disastrous war for no reason and their body bags and people hate it, I don't think you can outcommunicate that. But it may be that you don't have to be super, super faithful to what you're actually doing in your public communication. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a fundamentals guy. I don't want to say that, like, external reality doesn't matter. But I do think that the question of, like, do, like, legislative results matter? Because I think a, a lot of our um, conventional wisdom about the presidency, right, a lot of, like, what I have read in books about the presidency and about effectiveness and models that, quote unquote, work or don't work, are based on the assumption that the president has a sort of a proper motive for having become president, that Perhaps mistakenly, the the president has a vision for the country that he wants to move toward. And so that success or failure is determined by like the delta between the status quo and, and where that vision is. And so that's where we get ideas like Bill Clinton's first chief of staff was ineffective, right? Or JFK is fondly remembered but didn't get much done as a president. But I don't believe that Donald Trump particularly cares how effective Donald Trump is at implementing what we might we might say there's there's a Mike Pence side of mm-hmm. Donald Trump and there's also a Steve Bannon side of Donald Trump and I don't think Donald Trump cares about either of those agendas right and if he accomplishes some of those things fine if he doesn't also fine. He has an objective need to maintain an adequate level of institutional support from congressional Republicans, right? Which means I don't think he can just jettison their agenda, but he can clearly, he he clearly feels confident that at this point he can stand up, deliver a high profile speech that literally does not mention any of House Republicans' key legislative priorities, and they will not complain about it, mm-hmm. right? This would be a different situation if if the way we thought the world worked was that after giving a speech like that, Jeb Henserling would be featured on Fox News 
saying, I'm really disappointed that the president didn't talk about core conservative priorities and that then Bill O'Reilly and other conservative pundits would do shows that were about how terrible this inaugural address was, right? But there is not that kind of jumpiness, right? That jumpiness does not exist in major conservative media and it doesn't exist in the caucus. Now, there may be nervousness, right? But like famously, uh, Democrats are neurotic, Right. And like anytime anything happens when Barack Obama was president, when Hillary Clinton was a candidate, there will immediately be like a big prominent debate inside ideological center left circles, but like taking place out in public. That's like, is this a huge betrayal? Is she blowing it? Um, And at the moment, at least, Trump has mastery over his movement, right? And everything is celebratory. And if he wants to strike a populist tone, everyone talks about what a striking populist tone it was he got. Is that like effective in a traditional sense? I have no idea. I don't think that that matters, right? Now, of course, if the country is mired in a recession, then, you know, what's Trump going to say, right? But the economy is okay now. If the economy just sort of continues to putter along, but Trump starts talking about how now it's awesome because blue lives matter. It just it seems to me that that could be good enough. At the same time that those folks were not criticizing the speech for not having enough in traditional Republican concerns, I thought one of the really fascinating things that happened was during the speech, the transition of WhiteHouse.gov from being President Obama's website to President Trump's website happened. And they have an issues page. And the issues page only has six things on it. It is America first energy plan, America first foreign policy, bringing back jobs and growth, making our military strong again, uh, interestingly, standing up for our law enforcement community and trade deals working for all Americans. And with the exception of the trade plank, if you read these issues, it's pretty standard issue conservative pablum. Um, I shouldn't say pablum. It's standard issue conservative ideas. The energy thing is interesting, though, because it's a it's a very normal conservative like climate change is great. We love oil companies, but it's called America right. first. It, right. It's it's a it's a striking new branding of yes. the same policy. And this I thought was fascinating because here you have in the official channel of Trump. Right. And this is the staff written channel. This is, I think, the Pence side of Trump. It just looks, you know, with some Trumpy branding like a plan they got from the Heritage Foundation, uh, plus the law enforcement piece of it. Um, meanwhile, his speech was a whole other thing. And this really is, and and, and sir, I, one thing I'd be interested to hear you expound on a bit is you have real doubts that Levin and others who are suggesting that you can manage Trump by just letting him say what he wants and then assuming he will do what his conservative staff ends up recommending mm-hmm. that he does. Uh, but I, I think you think that's not true. I think that you can muddle through that way. Is that what you're saying? No, I thought okay. so. If I understood what you're saying earlier before, correctly, yes. this idea that people have that you can cut one deal with Trump's staff and that what Trump kind of thinks and says out there doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, my sense is you were skeptical of that. It seems very odd to me that you can just decide or that it'll be possible to decide, oh, well, what he's saying, that just doesn't matter. And it seems more plausible. Well, I guess the first thing that surprised me since we're talking about the website, is that there was just no healthcare section. No healthcare. Which I just found like, so I went into the website and I searched for Obamacare. There was not a single word about Obamacare on whitehouse.gov as of like 3 p.m. on Friday. There's not a single mention of the phrase Affordable Care Act on whitehouse.gov, which is a little surprising given that President Donald Trump has said his number one agenda item is repealing the Affordable Care Act. So that was a bit 
surprising. I expected to have something where, you know, maybe it was absent in the speech, but then you had the thing on the website that was kind of like cribbed from Heritage or his, you know, campaign website about healthcare. Um, I, so in, in terms of like what his role is in all of this, it seems like he wants to insert himself into this. It's not just tweeting about it, but he's been giving so many interview interviews to Axios, to um, the Washington Post, to the New York Times, where he's just like going out there, like making his thoughts known, like setting the bar, health insurance for everyone. And I actually am starting to think, and I'll be writing about this more next week, like conservative health policy ends up kind of bending in kind of interesting ways towards the ideals that Trump is setting. I think there is a desire to set aside what he is doing, but that's really hard to do when he is now leader of your party and president of the United States. And I think you will see, for example, um, like this idea of auto enrollment, which was kind of it felt like obscure in health policy. Like I talked to some senators like Senator Cassidy from Louisiana about it, but never like felt prominent. All of a sudden, I so see what's this, auto enrollment? What? Auto enrollment is basically signing. It, it seems odd to me. This is in a few Republican health care plans. But the idea is you basically you get a very basic plan that costs the exact same amount as the tax credit and you enroll people into that. And that is actually it seems like a way you could get towards this promise that Donald Trump has made of coverage for everyone. I did not how see do you, that. How do you enroll people automatically, though? Is it? We don't know? have that figured out. Okay. Yet. That's like um, you'd have what to. What if there was a public option? Okay, right. So it, we do not know the mechanisms. Like some people I've talked to have suggested you could go through Medicaid. It's unclear like how exactly this works. But as an idea, it's something I came across like a few months ago, wasn't getting a bunch of attention. And the fact I've seen like all this buzz, I mean, like it's not, you know, the hottest thing in the world, but like all this buzz in health policy circles around the idea of auto enrollment and like, oh, maybe that's something we should explore to get to these coverage levels that Trump is talking about. Uh, so it feels like he is, as much as he might not be involved directly in these negotiations, like what he says, it matters. And it matters because he's the president of the United States and the leader of the Republican Party. Yes. <laughs> well, he is that now. I know. I mean, it, to me, this just seems to paint toward Obamacare repeal ending in some kind of slightly embarrassing muddle on Capitol Hill. Right. That I think it is going to be challenging to come up with a plan that meets those kind of goals that enough Republicans are actually excited about voting for to make it worth doing. Right. It's like a kind of like an intellectual exercise. Like, can we come up with a plan that meets these coverage goals, but also is cheaper? And uh -huh. like probably some clever wonks can. But like, I mean, the thing Democrats found writing Affordable Care Act, right, is it's it's hard to write a concrete law that gets tons and tons of people to all go vote for it because people's opinions differ and it's very complicated and there's a lot of different moving parts. I think they also learned it's hard to deliver on concrete promises. Like right. if you like your health insurance, but you I mean, can it's keep like it. The, the reason that Obamacare passed is that a lot of members of Congress, like people like Bernie Sanders, right, who had fairly fundamental philosophical disagreements with that legislation, voted for it anyway mm -hmm. because they cared enough about the sort of underlying issue that they were willing to vote for a bill that, you know, as you saw later in his campaign, he was actually like quite disparaging about the system that it set up. But he feels passionately about coverage. And I just don't see in congressional Republican ranks like that level of interest in the underlying thing that will get 
you know, because you write a bill, right? And it's like some people's idea of what a good bill is. And then necessarily it's a bunch of other people's idea of like a not so good bill. And you need people to like go vote for the not so good bill. And I think that's a high it's a high bar to clear. It's not really where Republicans are in their heads. And as we see from Trump, like not putting this on his website, not putting it in his speech, it's also not like the president is actually going to be out there, like yelling at people like, hey, man, I got to get you on board for the Trump care. Right. I mean, he seems I mean, I I, I take that sort of bullet points on the on the website at its um at his face value, right? That like Trump is definitely going to want some kind of big tax cut. He's definitely want some big energy dere- deregulation, um, and he's going to do something on trade. I think he's happy to do other stuff if like Congress wants to, but it's hard to like uh, what do they call it? Herding cats up there, and like he's not going to be the cat herder. Let me ask one question. To bring this back to Trump's inaugural that that I'm curious about uh, before we wrap up. Were you guys surprised that the speech didn't make more of an effort at being conciliatory? I mean, there's been all I know Trump is tweeting and we talked about this that he doesn't believe the polls, but people around him believe polls. And he we now have a slew of polls suggesting he's in the high 30s, low 40s, which is really bad at this juncture. This was a speech that was very core to the base. This was a speech that was really about his people. And he had actually this fascinating line in there where he talked about the forgotten man and woman and how you have Washington now and they will never forget you again. And you were the people who created this movement. And it was very much you describing not the American people, but but Trump supporters. And do you think that there is a theory here that they just kind of have to write off the folks who are on the other side of the political divide from them, that it's just too far gone. And the thing to do is really focus on the intensity of their supporters. Do you think there's just like their intuition? Do you think that I'm misreading it? This is something that I thought I might see more of in the speech. And and, and there, it just really wasn't there. Yeah. And something that is traditionally in these speeches, right. like um, Elvin Chang, one of our reporters here, he did this good piece where he read every inauguration from Washington to Obama. And it, it actually like turns out there's a formula that we've had for over 200 years. And part of it is like this call to unity. So in that way, it was kind of surprising in that, like, it is such a traditional part of an inauguration for, you know, centuries now. It didn't feel super surprising to me watching it. Like, it felt like a Trump speech. It felt like talking to his base. And it felt like it was after I wrote a story today about how um, a new Fox News poll showed that um, Obamacare is more popular than Trump. And immediately the emails I got were all emails about how that's a fake poll and I'm fake news. Oh, really? And like, I was like, okay, well, and if that's like the environment we're in, I kind of get it more now. Like, why bother to give that any credence if you're- That was a Fox News poll. It was a Fox News poll. But I got, you can see on Twitter, one of my emails where some of the subject line was fake news and it just went into what a garbage human I am. Um, But if that's like where- People are at, I guess, like, why mess with it at this point? Like, why? I don't know. Like, if you've decided to stake out this space of not believing the polls, like, why choose this speech to to go into the direction of saying, like, I know we're divided when you've decided that your position is, like, I'm an incredible, amazing human being. That's interesting, yeah. I think the thing that they like strategically about this hard pessimism is that it confounds Trump's opponents. Right. I think that it is um, challenging 
for Democrats to respond to that message, not because the message per se is like so amazing or that like everybody loves it, but that there's a real set of fissures inside the Democratic coalition over this like basic emotional reaction to the present, right? And there's a set of you know, I don't know, like bougie urban liberals who I think have wanted to say over the past year, like, America is already great. Inner cities are not living in hell. You know, like thing, things are good. And there's another faction of Democrats that keeps wanting to say, like, yeah, the economy is rigged. The big players are getting over on you kind of thing. And that Trump, by leaning like so comically into this sort of like rigged system rhetoric, makes it hard for his opponents to like coordinate on what it is they were trying to say against him. And at least creates the possibility for what he pulled off in November, which was to win despite being unpopular, right? Like if you can't make people who dislike Donald Trump start to like Donald Trump, if you can make the adversaries argue with each other, right? If you can turn all of afternoon Twitter into being liberals scolding anarchists for lighting trash cans on fire, and then like more left-wing people who weren't actually out there setting trash cans on fire, but who don't like when centrists punch left or criticize, you know what I mean? Like, Like that kind of thing, right? Just like constantly stirring the pot is i think i i don't want to give like too much credit to this as like a genius idea but i think it's something that they that they like i think that we saw um there was this story that i thought was ridiculous at the time about how trump was going to micro target young african americans with facebook video old Facebook video of Hillary Clinton talking about super predators in the mid-90s. I don't know whether that was a good idea or not, but they really did do it, right? Um, And turnout among young African-Americans really was down for Democrats. I think a sort of first-level analysis that, like, Democrats replaced a black candidate with a white candidate, and that's why it went down, probably carries more weight than, like, this Facebook video strategy was brilliant. Uh, But they clearly thought it was a good idea because they did it, and it achieved the result that they were hoping for. And so I do think that you're going to see, like, just more and more of that, just kind of, like, mind games and, and, you know, make it hard. Like, what is Chuck Schumer's reply to the idea that Washington politicians have been enriching themselves at the expense of ordinary voters. Does Schumer try to say, no, actually, Washington insiders are amazing? Because that sounds bad. But does Chuck Schumer, who's been in Congress since I was in diapers, try to say, like, no, I'm the real outsider? Like, it's it's tough. I don't know. What do you think, Ezra? You asked us the question, but what do you think? I think it's a bad idea. (laughs) I think that, uh, to, to Matt's point... I think it works for precisely like 72 more hours. That's not actually true. I think it works for another year. Mm -hmm. But at that point, when you're president, I mean, this happened to Barack Obama, too. Obama was the consummate outsider when he ran for president. He was really good at it. Right. He he had these great riffs. He's like, ah, you know, the the political elders, they want you to get more seasoning, get shaken up a little bit more, stirred, get a few more great. Like he had these very funny long riffs, if you remember his rallies from back then. And then at a certain point, you're president and you just own it. 
And as confounding as it might be to the minority, like Trump is at some point going to have to pivot. And he's going to, and this is a pivot that the Obama administration never figured out how to make either. Uh, he's at some point going to have to pivot and say, you did elect me and now things aren't so terrible. I brought in all these Goldman Sachs people and I brought in the CEO of Exxon and now the corrupt elite are no longer rigging the economy in their favor like it, it's for you. Um, so I, I take Matt's point, but I, I kind of don't know where they take it from here. The The other thing I'll say that I think relates to this at least a little bit is um, there is this other big theme in the speech. And I think that in a way that if I had Steve Bannon sitting here or Donald Trump sitting here, what they would say to this is that's not a pessimistic speech. And it's mm -hmm. definitely not a divisive speech, that it's a speech that is extremely heavy on themes of nationalism and patriotism. And that's a unifying theme. I don't think in the way they use it, it actually is a unifying theme, but I think they might actually think it is. Trump kept using the term America first, which has a very anti-Semitic history, but I think give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that's how they're seeing it, hopefully. But one thing that's interesting within that is I do think there's something very profound about Trump's worldview that he reveals in these speeches again and again. Uh, he also had another line in there that, you know, our simple principle is going to be jobs in America made in America, something like that. By American, hire American. By American, hire American. I'm also, sorry. his Thank wife you. was born in Slovenia. <laughs> <laughs> and his shirts were made in China, but and his, his new golf courses in Scotland. But it's an international Tr businessman. Trump has a very transactional view of the world, of politics, of foreign policy that is zero sum in its structure. He thinks that there's basically a limited amount of money, a limited amount of jobs. And when China gets more, we get less. And in some weird way, Trump doesn't really believe this. Like, I think if you pinned him down and talked to him about his golf course, he would say, and he said, like, is it good for Scotland to have a Trump golf course there? He'd say, yeah, it's, it's great. Like, I'm a genius golf course designer. And like, they're so lucky to have my golf course. And then we'd say, well, is it good for you to have your golf course? And he'd be like, yeah, I'm making all this money off of my Scotland golf course. And so Trump, in some intuitive way, understands that there are benefits that can be, you can actually grow the pie by having a, a more global outlook. But in his policymaking doesn't. And so he's trying to have this very, a very narrow kind of transactionalism that leads into a kind of patriotism that I think he believes will be unifying. And a place where I have a pretty core disagreement with him is I don't think the message is that unifying, but more to the point, I think if he does begin starting trade wars with Germany and China and Mexico, I think it will be bad for both America and the people we're having trade wars with. And then a bad economy is definitely not unifying. And I think this is serious in how he's going to govern. I think this is something that he really believes. It. We did this great feature where different folks in the Vox newsroom read all 12 of Trump's like books, except for the one on golf. And this is a theme going all the way back to the beginning. He has a zero-sum transactional view of like economic foreign policy. It's here in the speech. I think it's what he thinks will be unifying, but I think it's bad policy. And I think in the way it's going to come out, particularly in the way he wields it against folks who certainly a lot of folks on the left believe to be part of the American story at this point, uh, it doesn't work. Something I have been fascinated to see is that I think that most people don't realize the extent to which Presidents Bush and Obama have actually been doing the stuff that they think they want Donald Trump to do. And they always wind up sort of going small with it because it doesn't 
um, it doesn't work. Uh, but like my sort of one foray into like Trump country reporting was talking to some people in uh, Bucksport, Maine, who told me they had voted for some Democrats in the past and had not voted in some other elections. But like Donald Trump was the first Republican they were excited about. And they were excited about him because he was going to bring back uh, paper mill jobs um, from China. Um it turns out there was a great story in, in the Wall Street Journal about Obama's uh, 2015 uh, tariffs on Chinese paper that wound up, or rather Canadian paper, which wound up leading to countermeasures from Canada, which closed some other plant. And eventually both the U.S. and Canada wound up backing down from this. Some jobs were lost in the interim. The plant they were trying to save went under anyway because there's been a structural decline in, in paper. Uh, so I, I thought that was- I missed a, the great paper war Yeah, so I thought that was a good story. And then when looking for more background on it, I found that there had been a previous round of paper tariffs against China that Obama levied in 2010. Um, in the middle of this heated campaign about trade, there was actually, Obama put a, a very steep, I think a 400% tariff on imported Chinese steel, uh, which pleased steelworkers. But then it turned out that end users of steel were complaining at the administration. Bush didn't like to tariff China for reasons that Obama people have always puzzled to me about, but he got into lots of obscure trade fights with Europe. Um, so at the end of the Bush years, there was this like crippling tax on a Roquefort cheese from France because they had started getting really cute. That seems on brand. Yeah. So so they'd started getting, this was, a, it was a dispute. The underlying issue had to do with bananas, uh, which are of course not grown in the United States or in Europe, uh, but US-based and European-based banana conglomerates were warring over bananas of Central American origin. So then the Europeans started levying tariffs that were meant to specifically hit Republicans like in Iowa because Iowa was a swing state. So then Bush came up with these like fancy French cheese taxes. Um, nothing was like accomplished by any of this. And it was one of the early things Obama did was just like kind of like wipe the decks clean and Europe forgave and forgot because they'd all hated Bush and, and they loved Obama. Um, so I, I'm going to be interested to see how this plays out because I, I could see making the case and I, I saw Wilbur Ross's testimony and his view seemed to be that what you need to do is go into these things, not because it's zero sum, but precisely because it is positive sum. If you go in and you look like you're the crazy person who is absolutely willing to completely burn the whole thing to the ground, they kind of like have to give you a bigger share of the pie. Um, because if the whole global trading system collapses, everybody suffers, but the United States suffers less because our country is so big. Um, that's what he seemed to me to be saying. I, I don't, that's actually is risky, um, in an unusual way. I don't know if they will really go through with it. But it, to me, it's it's the thing to watch, right? Because there's a version of this policy that we've seen under the past two presidents, and it doesn't work. So one possibility is Trump will try the same thing that doesn't work, uh, but with more bells and whistles. The other possibility is that he'll try like what they didn't try, right? Which is like go to the mattresses. To be right. continued on that dazzling display of obscure trade fight erudition. There's been a special American Carnage edition of the Weeds. Uh, the Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply podcast, and we'll be back as normal uh, next week. And thank you to our producers who are here late on a Friday. 
Afim Shapiro and Peter Leonard uh, to bring you this special episode of The Weeds. 